Welcome to 15 Past 15, Season 2. My name is Martin Duesenberry. And I'm Birgit Tremorvena. In this season, we're talking about wealth and the writing of history, and we're delighted today to be joined by Professor Iris Borovi, who is Distinguished Professor at Shanghai University. Iris, thanks very much for being with us. Thanks very much for inviting me. So in this series, we've been thinking about the relationship between wealth and capital, wealth and labor, wealth and natural resource extraction, uh, hidden labor, um, and many other aspects of uh, the debates that surround wealth. But one thing we haven't today explicitly discussed is the relationship between wealth and health, which is something that you have done a lot of research on yourself. Could you maybe, in the first instance, give us an overview of the general story that is told about the relationship between wealth and health? Um, yeah, certainly. Uh, maybe just as one quick comment, it's actually quite noteworthy that we do not think about wealth and health so much because try to do a lot of work and work yourself into earning a lot of money when you're not healthy. I mean, health is probably one of the most central preconditions to amass wealth, unless all your wealth is inherited. So just to begin with that, this is a central topic of wealth. But that's very interesting because that implies that my question is sort of from a set of European assumptions about it no longer being necessary to talk about the relationship between health and wealth to the same degree as it might have been, say, in 1800 or 1900. I'm not sure that I would totally agree with that. I mean, if you're unable to work, how long could you stay wealthy today in any country? I think it's probably today Social Security shields us from some of the harsher um, dependencies that, that we had in former times, but it doesn't mean that it is unrelated um, still today in any country. But... Back to your question, I don't want to avoid that. Um, the, the conventional wisdom or the, the, um, yeah, the mainstream idea about the relation, not so much um, from the point of view on what health does for wealth, but how wealth relates to health the other way around, is that um, more wealth equals healthier people. And um, there are two parts of that. To some extent, it simply makes intuitive sense that if I have more money, I can buy better food, I can bet, buy, buy better housing. Um, my life is easier, it is better. Um, and there is also a lot of uh, scholarly research that actually supports that. Um, if you look at which type of people um, are healthier, live longer lives, both on, a, on, on an individual level and also on a societal level, um, there's a lot of supporting evidence. So we could stop here and say, um, wealth is good for health. If you want to be healthy, make sure that you have a lot of money. And um, if you don't go into the historical background to that, um, you have no trouble whatsoever proving that. And the second element? Well, one of the paradoxes of that relationship is that if you look at it from today's point of view and you just correlate today's numbers, you find the perfect correlation between wealth and health. That while you look at it in a chronological, dynamic uh, perspective and see how historically economic growth and health has correlated, you find that it really hasn't very much. So if you look 
you know, um, horizontally you find a connection that if you look vertically, you don't find. So of course the question, how can that be possible? How is it possible that today you find this, this very strong, robust correlation, while if you see how it has come about in history, you don't. In fact, in historical data, you often find the opposite, that in, in periods of um, economic growth, of economic expansion, um, the health of large parts of all parts of society actually suffers. People live shorter lives and people have more health problems. So that is, that is a paradox. And how do you explain this paradox? The short answer to that is that in the short run, uh, economic expansion is usually not good for health. It doesn't, it's not true for all cases. It's one of these things that are very complicated and whenever you say it's always true, that is probably an inaccurate statement. But for the most part, the social disruption that comes with growing economies, um, and disruption can mean simply more work, less sleep, more stress, more stress that comes with more work, but also more stress that comes with rapid changes in society, which even if they're positive are social stresses, uh, but can also be uh, more migration, um, people migrating into an area because there are more job opportunities that come with different um, pathogens. All these are uh, reasons for our, our, our health stresses, our burdens on health. And that uh, th these issues shorten lives, that can be measured. But that the improved economic situation that comes as a result of that in the long run um, then benefits sometimes the next or the following several generations that then inherit the, um, the, the wealth and the, the opportunities that come with that wealth. So what we're talking about here is a sort of delayed effect on health in generations? Yes. Yes. The, the, that, the very clear and short answer is yes. And that is true both in positive and in negative terms, and also both in economic and in physical terms. I mean, we, we don't get born on, a, on an empty slate. I mean, we, we all come with the record of what our generations before have left us. So if we get born and our parents or grandparents, and not only you know, individually, but their generations, have presented us with um, you know, central heating, with lives in, with running water, we are benefiting from that. And if physically the generation before um, had, you know, women's bodies were well fed, um, had time to rest during pregnancy, had good um, nutrition, we benefit from that also. Um, so the, we have to think of delayed effects if we want to understand health. So what you said about this is very interesting. What does this actually mean for us and for future generations? Well, what is true for us is true for future generations just as well. I mean, history is just a, any arbitrary point in time. So what we have inherited from people in the past, we are leaving the results of our lives, of, of the way we arrange our lives for future generations. So if, if we have held healthy lives, this will be good for children born in the future. But 
if we have a system, an economic system that depends on environmental destruction, and of course the biggest issue now is climate change. The results of our wealth today re relies very heavily, or depends very heavily on fossil fuels. Um, the wealth we have, and that includes all the healthy living that we have, relies very much on that, on having, on, on having cheap fuel. But we don't know very much, and what we do know is quite negative that how this will affect people's health in the future. But this is very interesting, this discussion of resource exploitation, because it takes us from transformation across time, across generations, also to a question about space. Where do you get the resources from? And one of the points you make in your research is that space is absolutely crucial to any kind of discussion about the relationship between health and wealth. You mention in particular the exploitation of the new world uh, in your work. Can you say a little bit about why or, or how the, the European discovery, in inverted commas, of the new worlds affected a story about health in Europe? Yes. The, the background is the same thing, is that our health, and that includes one individual person's health, does not exist in a vacuum. Um, and exists on the circumstances that produce the, 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 the determinants of health for that person. So in terms of um, space, it means that the resources that, actually it's more than the resources, it's the preconditions that have made uh, economic growth possible, which in the long term is benefiting us today, dependent on circumstances in the new world. Part of that was simply um, having more land that made it possible for people to migrate into the new world, which had two um, important effects. On the one hand, it made possible the plantation economy, which formed an important building block for industrialization. And secondly, it was it it, it uh, presented a demographic uh, mitigation. So it reduced overcrowding and therefore reduced the um, uh, unhealthy living conditions for people living in Europe at the time. At the same time, it made labor more expensive, which also was an important building block for mechanization of, and for the Industrial Revolution. The second point is that uh, the, the early plantation economy that was based in the New World did not rely only on space, and that space Maybe I should have made that clearer. That space existed, empty space existed, because of depopulation in the New World. And that existed because mainly, there were more than one reason, but mainly because of um, diseases that were transmitted into the New World and that wiped out anything between 50 and 95% of the population there. So um, part of that was, was, was European aggression, um, but really that was the smallest part. It was really... It was a health asymmetry that existed between the old and the new world, meaning that in the old world there was much higher uh, pathogen load than in the new world, so if these two worlds connected, um, the, the result is simply mass dying in the new world. But that means that any story that we tell about the improvement in laborers' health, for example, across the period of European industrialization must include 
as a central part of that story, the spread of disease and the dying out of indigenous populations in the new world? A, an accurate measurement should, yes. Yes, and it's simply not included in the numbers that we see. If you look at uh, the, the numbers, and there was something that I was talking about in the beginning, that compares today's wealth with today's health at the same time and in the same spot, it simply doesn't show that. It doesn't show those relations. So this is a little bit like Kenneth Pomerantz's argument in, um, in the, the, great, the Great divergence of these ghost acres that if, if we, we can't talk about European growth without understanding the millions of acres that uh, there were in European colonies in the New World. Yes, that's, that's part of that. You say that these are in some ways hidden elements in any measurement one makes. How would, you, how would you account for this? There are hidden costs Costs in terms of finance, but mainly in terms of human suffering for the wealth of future generations, for our health. And I think the hidden costs, and I'm afraid the hidden costs do not only go back in history, but also into the future. I think that our well-being also depends on people in the future. The difference is that while we do benefit from what problems other people have had in the past, we are not personally responsible for that. I mean, we have no say in um, any of these connections, either on, on which people are enslaved or we certainly were not responsible, not even people in the past were very much responsible for uh, the effects that, that um, old world pathogens would have on new world societies. It's just these connections are there and I think we should account for that by being conscious of it, not by feeling guilty about it or by you know this is not a blame game it's it's if you if your parents die and you inherit their wealth you benefit from a parent's death but that doesn't mean you killed them um, however we are responsible for what we leave to future generations in so far i think it's important to be aware of that and we do have a responsibility for possible human suffering that our well-being and the, the economic determinants of our today's well-being will have for future generations. And can I follow up with a question then? You mentioned the plantation economy. Uh, also, the classic story told here by Sidney Mintz and others is that sugar produced in the New World goes into a European diet. And you're making also the case that this has profound implications on European health in the industrializing period. Yes, actually, I'm I'm using that also from um, Kenneth Pomeranz. So it's the, uh, it's especially sugar, uh, which is especially important, uh, which in the early 19th century, or actually a little earlier than that, uh, does contribute quite substantially to uh, calorie intake in 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 Europe. I mean, it's something that we don't think about as something being positive today because we're all suffering from calorie overload. Um, but in those days where it was important simply to be fed and not to be hungry, that was a, a very important part. Of course, this, these plantation economies depended on slave labor. So again, to, um, to calculate, actually maybe calculate isn't the best word, to measure 
um, to understand the relation between, um, between the economic system and health plantation as plantation system and the health of slaves um, should also factor in. Well, of course, slavery was not healthy for slaves. Um, you know, was, a lot of people died. A lot of people died even before they arrived in the New World. And uh, mortality was very high among slaves once they, they worked in the plantations as well. It sounds to me that health equalizes population growth in pre-modern societies. But are there not any other aspects that are crucial in the understanding of the relationship between health and wealth? Uh, yes and no. Um, I, I think health health does not equal population growth, but without health you don't have a population growth. I mean, health at its simplest, health is a very complicated issue. So if you want to define health, it's difficult to do, and um, you know, which is why institutions like the WHO have had a hard time finding one. So, I mean, they, the official definition by the WHO today is that um, health is more than uh, the absence of disease, but it's the state of complete mental, physical, and social well-being. It's a definition that has been widely criticized as being, meaning by that definition, nobody is healthy. But it, um, it also means that, as you say, it is, it is, it is more than only dying. But if you go back to what it means at its simplest terms, it means people being alive. And if people are healthy for a long time, that means they stay alive for a long time, uh, which means they, they have long life expectancy. And that, again, is, is a precondition for population growth. But of course, population growth depends on many other things. It has to do with fertility. Um, it has to do also with migration, um, things that are related to, but are sort of at the margin of health. So, but your question was about other aspects. Yes, I mean, b by mentioning fertility and also the definition you gave, you already gave some insights on what else health is about. I mean, health also is about um, things that we call the, the determinants of health. And they are very varied. Uh, part of that is, is um, you know, what we call lifestyles. Um, like, how, how do we eat? Do we exercise? Don't we exercise? Uh, do we smoke? Uh, who do we sleep with? How do we have sex? Um, all these things are part of, de you know, determine how you're healthy. Um, sometimes these are reduced to being personal choices, and of course that's part of it, but we don't make personal choices in a vacuum either. They're also part of the social context. Um, like, what, um, what possibilities do we even have to make choices? Um, what role models do we have? Uh, what opportunities to buy healthy food are there where we live? What occupational um, contexts are there? So all these things are important. Can I chip in there? I mean, mm. you talk about we, but one of the points that you make in your research is when we're analyzing this relationship historically, much of our data comes from Great Britain mm. by default. Um, of course, you live and work in China as well. Presumably, the, the definition of we here is quite different, potentially. How do we do these things? Can you say a little bit about the danger, perhaps, of assuming that there is one set model between health and wealth that is universal? Well, I think there is dangers to both, uh, both to unduly universalizing it by assuming that people live and 
experience wealth and health in the same way around the world. But there is also a danger in de-universalizing it by assuming somehow, you know, maybe there's people who don't need healthy food and to remain healthy. Um, I think at the basic level, health is pretty universal. I mean, we all need food to live. We all need healthy environments. Um, and the questions about to what extent does wealth deliver on these determinants is culturally different, but is in principle the same. Of course, one of these cultural contexts is what do we do with wealth? Because uh, while having at least a minimum, or maybe more than a minimum, uh, at least a certain degree of wealth is a precondition for being able to afford healthy lives, both on individual and on collective levels. But it's not a guarantee. Like, if I have more money, I can buy better food, but I can also spend the money on cigarettes and alcohol. And then having more money will actually make me unhealthier. And the same is true on the collective level. I mean, if a society becomes richer, it can put this money into um, free healthcare for everybody, or education, which is probably more important than healthcare, actually, or on, on um, vaccinations. All these things are good for health. But um, societies can also put the money into enriching a small minority of people, or into um, you know, a lot of armaments. Um, all these are decisions. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that, uh, I guess the bottom line is that wealth is not unrelated to health. Um, there, there is actually a, a, you know, a very, very important link between the two. But there is no automatic, either positive or negative link. Um, the link between wealth and health is decisions, both individual, psychological, social, and political decisions. Iris Barovi, thank you very much. My pleasure entirely. <laughs> <laughs>